Open to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. In a few moments, I'll read verses 1 to 12. Our family, like perhaps yours, has many Christmas movies that are part of our kind of yearly routine. And if you think, you know, what do most Christmas movies have in common? There's a few things. It's usually set in a snowy New England setting, right? They're not in Arizona. No Christmas movies that I know of take place there. It's always snowy outside and pine trees and Victorian homes. Often there's characters that are transformed by some type of undefined Christmas spirit or experience. And usually there's a villain. And sometimes that villain is transformed by the end and sometimes it's not. So you think of uh, A Christmas Carol, whether it's the Mickey Mouse version or any of the other iterations. And, of course, we have Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, whose very name is synonymous with being anti-Christmas, right? When you call somebody a Scrooge. Uh, Think of A Wonderful Life with Mr. Potter, who wanted to squash and ruin poor George Bailey and their savings and loan. Think of The Grinch with uh, The Grinch, right? Right? Home Alone with Harry and Marv, the bumbling bandits that are somehow thwarted by an eight-year-old boy. Right, and over and over again, we can think of these villains. And they add to a movie, of course. They add to the tension of it. They add to the story. Um, Sometimes they're kind of silly and humorous. Well, the true story of Christmas has a villain. But this villain is not bumbling like Harry and Marv, there's no comic relief. He's not transformed like Scrooge and the Grinch, at least not that we know of, not that's recorded. He was violent and menacing and paranoid. And he was one more attempt, ultimately by the evil one, to cut off the line of the Messiah before his redemptive work could be accomplished. So as we're doing this series on the supporting cast of Christmas, trying to look at some of the figures that have been preserved for us in Scripture that that help us to understand the central figure of the Messiah even more. We're going to look today at the the villain of the story and his attempts to end Christmas, in a sense, before it even began. But mixed in with this villain in the same passage are some other supporting characters. And they present, present quite the contrast where the villain is trying to destroy the Messiah, these other characters come from afar to worship him. And this contrast between their two responses actually illustrates for us two responses to Christ throughout history since then and and even today. Let's go ahead and read this now. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is now... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king saw this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. They sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went away. 
And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So we'll look at these characters uh, marching through this, and we'll start with the Magi, we'll turn to Herod, and then we'll come back to the Magi, because that's what we have happening in the text. And so the Magi is who we see first, and of course they simply traveled from the east to worship, and to worship Jesus. But who are these figures? Who are, who are the Magi? Sometimes we refer to them as kings, sometimes we refer to them as wise men, some of your translations might say that. Who are these figures? Well, there are probably academics, scholars, most likely from the region of modern-day Iraq and Iran, they were not kings themselves. Contrary to the song, We Three Kings, they were not kings. There probably weren't three of them either. Um, so sorry to just squash all that at once for you, if that's one of your favorite songs. It's, great. it's a great song. Um, they were advisors to the king. They were, they were wise advisors uh, to the king, but not kings themselves. Part of their scholarship would have had to do with studying the stars, and studying the stars for a number of different reasons, in, in a way that kind of probably blends what we think of as astronomy and astrology together. Uh, the two are very different, as any uh, astronomer would want to tell you, right? The, the website, actually, for the American Astronomical Society for Astronomers says this, Astronomy is a science that studies everything outside of the Earth's atmosphere such as planets, stars, asteroids, galaxies, and the properties and relationships of those celestial bodies. Astronomers base their studies on research and observation. Astrology, on the other hand, is the belief that the positioning of the stars and planets affect the way events on Earth occur. My guess is that is a common pet peeve for astronomers to be called astrologers, right? Um, well, they're not so much practicing astrology here, although that may have been blended in. It's not that what's happening in these stars is affecting what happens on Earth, but they did see some type of event, phenomenon, that led them to come here. We don't exactly know what they saw. It says that they followed a star. It comes up here in verse 2. They follow a star in the east and have come to worship him. That star, a little bit later, moves around and seems to point to a specific place for them to go to. And so biblical scholars have, have wrestled with this and said, what, what is it that they're seeing? It could be a natural phenomenon that the Lord is using to indicate this event. God certainly could do that. Uh, some have wondered if it's a couple planets that have moved together in a particular way so it seems like to be an incredibly bright star, which in fact is kind of happening now. How many of you have seen that uh, in the night sky where I think it's Jupiter and Saturn that are moving close together? Has anybody seen that the last few nights? Yeah, um, well, look, look outside, right, uh, in, in the evening, and you'll see two planets coming close together, and over this next week, they're going to get so close, it's going to seem to be one body. Um, some have wondered, well, is that, is that what they saw? Um, it's possible. It's hard to see, though, how it would behave in the way that's described here, of appearing, directing them to go to the east, and then from Jerusalem even to get to Bethlehem in a specific location, some have argued that it could be a comet 
In fact, there's a book that came out about five years ago from a pretty respected biblical scholar called The Great Christ Comet, arguing that it's a comet. Could be, seems more likely that it was just simply a supernatural phenomenon that the Lord is using to, to direct and announce the coming birth of the Messiah. But whether it's natural or supernatural doesn't change the fact that the Lord is sovereign over this and is declaring that his son has, has come. Daniel Darling has a great quote on this. He would lean towards it being a natural event that the Lord is sovereignly using. I love this. He says, perhaps this is a dreary winter day for you when you're not feeling all the Christmas feels. Do you ever have days like that? Like you know you should be happy, but you're more like bah humbug, right? Maybe you're lonely and discouraged. Perhaps you've been rejected, but know this. If you are in Christ, God leveraged the entire universe to shout to you his message of love and drew you to himself. Saying if it is a natural phenomenon that the Lord was working through, it means that God orchestrated the very heavens, the very universe itself to declare the birth of his son. It's phenomenal. How would they have known, though, to even look for this star? How would they have known that it would tell them that the one who was to be born was born king of the Jews. And they were not Jewish people themselves. Well, remember, when the Jewish people were taken into exile, and they were taken to uh, this area of Babylon, um, they took with them their scriptures. And so as we have Daniel and his friends and all these Jewish people up there, they brought with them the word of God. And over centuries, that became embedded as part of the scholarly pursuit of the wise men there so that they knew to watch for the Messiah. And isn't that just like God, to work through a tragic circumstance, a tragic event, the rebellion of his people leading to their judgment, leading to the exile to bring the word of God there such that these people knew to watch for the Messiah. And so they've come, and they've come to worship. Look at the way this is worded in verse 2. Where is he, and put your eyes there on the text, because the way it's worded is important. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not born to be king, but already king. By his very nature, by his very identity, born king. You know, Silent Night, as we sing Silent Night, it ends with the line, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. And that's what they're saying here as well. Matthew, over and over again through the book of Matthew, declares the, the lordship, the kingship of Christ through the, the genealogy that shows that he's part of the line of David to this declaration by the wise men that he's born king of the Jews to his teaching that says, why does he teach with one that has such authority? To, to him telling him that the, the kingdom, their, their entrance to the kingdom depends on their response to him. He's shown in chapter 9 to have authority to forgive sins in chapter 10 to have authority over demons. And so here, even as a a very baby, he's born king of the Jews. So this is the wise men, these side characters. But then it turns to Herod. We see some about Herod here, and then a few verses later, actually outside of our section. So let's turn now to the, the villain, if you will, of the story. King Herod. King Herod determined to locate and to execute Jesus, we learn in verse 16, a little bit beyond our passage. But who is this figure? Who is Herod? We read about him here, you hear his name, and it repeats throughout Scripture with some of his descendants, but who is he? Uh, in probably 40 B.C., the year 40 B.C., several decades before this event, Herod was uh, placed as king uh, 
over Judea by the Romans. So he's an underking in a sense, under the Roman rule. Herod was an Edomite. He was not Jewish. Um, and he was probably near the end of his reign at this point in the story. Because if you recall, the passage we read last week, the, Jesus and his parents have to leave um, Israel, go down to Egypt to survive, and they can only come back after Herod has died, which, which, which they indicate is not a real long time. So he's probably near the end of his life at this point. He's known as Herod the Great, not because he was like wise and benevolent and kind. He was not. He was not any of those things. He was a prolific builder. He helped to rebuild the temple to build different structures in Jerusalem. He was described as a skilled speaker, as actually skilled in hand-to-hand combat when he was younger. But he was ruthless and violent. So much so that he, he executed his own wife and three of his sons because he was afraid they would try to take his throne. Uh, and then get this. Talk about paranoia. As he neared the end of his life, he made a decree that when he died... All these other nobles in the region would be gathered together and slaughtered. Not because he wanted to cut off like somebody else's line to reign, but because he wanted there to be so much weeping in the streets that he was afraid it wouldn't happen if it was just his death. So he wanted other deaths so that it would seem to be mourning him. Uh, That's this figure of Herod here. So it's no wonder when he hears about a, a rival to the throne that he responds with, manipulation, and ultimately great violence. Because we see that he really only pretends interest in the Messiah. He asks them to to find out where he's going to be born. He goes to his own scribes to find out where this would happen. But then as we skip ahead to verse 16, look a little bit further in chapter 2, verse 16. After the Magi don't return like he wants them to, verse 16 it says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined by the, from the Magi. In the city that side, that was, that was perhaps 15 to 30 little boys, little toddlers, that he slaughtered because he felt threatened. But of course, the one that he tried to end, he was unable to. The Lord had preserved the life of the, the Messiah by directing them down to Egypt to escape this. It's good to recognize here that Herod was just one more in a long line of circumstances and people that could have ended the Messiah before he even really began his ministry and his substitutionary death. Going back throughout the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, it's fascinating to see all these times that that had things turned out differently promised line that was supposed to lead to the Messiah would have been cut off. You think even with Abraham and God, God calling of Abraham and promising to, to, through him and his wife would come one that would ultimately bless the nations. He'd be the father of many nations, but there would be a descendant that would, would bless the nations. And yet, early on, we see them threatened by famine. We see them threatened by Abraham's own sinful lie where he pretends that his wife is really his sister because he's afraid by prolonged infertility and a lack of trust for a while. There are all these things that that could have ended the line before it even began, and yet the Lord preserved and brought about a descendant. 
Then as we fast forward a little bit, we see Jacob, Abraham's grandson in the family line of the promised Messiah, enduring family dysfunction, his own sinful scheming, more famine in the land that, that could have extinguished this, this early line. And yet the Lord providentially had brought his son Joseph down to Egypt to go before them to be in a position to preserve them. The Israelites go down to Egypt. Four centuries later, they're still there. The Pharaoh comes up, who sees them as a threat, tries to extinguish that line by, by trying to, to have all Hebrew male children um, killed at birth. But God raised up godly midwives who refused to do that and preserve the line. Later, God chose David and promised that the Messiah would come through his line, and yet David made a mess of his life and of his marriages before he repented. His lineage would often choose idolatry over worship. And for centuries, they experienced these cycles of judgment, and yet the Lord preserved. We see one incident of that in 2 Kings 11. There's a wicked king named Athaliah who wants to exterminate the royal line. And at this point, it's down to just one individual, this little boy named Joash. And somebody hides him in a closet, essentially, for six years to preserve his life. See, in the book of Esther, a wicked man named Haman who tried to kill off all the Jewish people. Remember, he had this edict declared where all of them were going to be slaughtered. And yet the Lord worked through Esther to turn that on its head and to save the people. So time and again, it's like the line could be ended either by getting rid of all of the people or just the, the one line it comes down to. And yet the Lord preserves. And it happens one more time here. Herod is thwarted. There's a clash of kingdoms that's coming up. And God continues to preserve the Messiah. Notice, though, how irrational Herod's actions are. Um, and that's often how sin is. Herod's actions don't really make sense. I mean, if the Magi are wrong, and this is just a baby, then he's no threat. Right? He's just a poor child born in obscurity and will amount to nothing. Why would Herod the Great view that as a threat? On the other hand, if the Magi are correct, and either through a supernatural sign or the stars themselves have announced the birth of the Messiah, and the Old Testament passages for hundreds of years have told them it's going to be born in Bethlehem, so this is not just any old child, but, but the Messiah, why would he think that he could stop it? His actions don't make sense, and yet that's what sin does. Sin so often causes us to act in ways that don't make sense in the light of reason. But Herod tries to squash this child. Turns back to the Magi, though, beginning in verse 9. And we see the Magi, of course, finding Jesus, presenting gifts, and worshiping him. We simply see that they followed the star until it arrived where the place where the child was. And notice the way their response is described. Verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The, the Greek behind that phrase is almost tripping over itself to describe their excitement. Picture little kids running out to the tree Christmas morning seeing all the presents. That's kind of what you should have in mind as they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because they'd found this one that they had been marching for and looking for. And they worshipped. Notice that response. They worshipped. And you might see that and think, well, of course, I mean, it's, it's Jesus. But, but remember, th throughout Old and New Testament, when, when people try to worship 
those that they should not worship. They try to worship an angel. They try to worship the apostles, disciples. What do they say over and over again? Don't worship. Don't, don't, don't worship me. Don't worship me. And yet that doesn't happen with Jesus. Obviously, he's a, he's a child here. But as it goes on throughout the book of Matthew, as people worship him, it's seen as appropriate to do. For example, Matthew 14, verse 33, is very disciples in the boat, as they saw this miraculous work that he did, it says they worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Matthew 28, verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet, and, and they worshiped him. Now again, you may say, so, so what? Well, these were, these were good monotheistic Jews who, who knew that it was the, the peak of idolatry and blasphemy to worship Anything beyond, beyond Yahweh, beyond the true God. And now, the, the wise men, we might say, okay, well, maybe they didn't know better. You know, they were, they were coming from the east. But, but no, the, throughout here, it's, it's people who, who knew to worship God alone, and yet they see Jesus, and they, and they worship him. And Jesus doesn't stop him. It's just one of those indicators throughout Scripture that he is indeed God himself. They brought gifts, valuable gifts. Gold, we know, frankincense and myrrh are both... Uh, perfumes, kind of sticky, gummy perfumes from different trees. Very expensive, though, because of how hard it is to obtain. Um, you might read that and say, these are really lame baby shower gifts, right? Like, why would they bring these baby shower gifts that may not seem appropriate? Gifts for a king, very appropriate. Very appropriate. This is exactly what you would bring to a king. So not only their words saying that he is born king of the Jews, their worship, but their very gifts so that they recognized who he was. Well, what do we do with this? And these are figures both with Herod's opposition and the Magi's worship. Both point to the identity of the Messiah. They both point to the identity of Jesus. But what does it have to do with us? Well, these responses are still responses that we see today. Still responses um, that we, even within this room, these very responses. Do you see Jesus as a threat you see Jesus as a threat. Herod did. Few, though, would respond with the, the violence of Herod. Although throughout history there have been dictators and tyrants who have violently tried to squash uh, what God is doing through his people. But we see this in a more tame way as we want to just be king of our own lives. And as people resist coming to Christ because they don't want to yield that authority, that throne to Jesus. They want to be their own standard of morality. They want to drive their own life and they see Jesus as a, a threat to that lifestyle. One author puts it this way and it's so good. He says, King Herod's reaction to Christ is, in this sense, a picture of all of us. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is the king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. It is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty, and it inevitably triggers deep resistance within the human heart. Our, our own sinful heart that wants to rule and wants to control our own lives can, can rebel against this claim of Christ to be Lord. Do we see him as a threat? Or, yielding that throne to him, like the Magi, do we... See him as the Savior and the King, worthy of worship. Rather than resisting his rule, we see him as worthy of worship. 
And that's the heart of the true meaning of Christmas is his work and his worth. And I, I love, you think of, can, what do people say is the, what Christmas is all about? And you'll hear different things said, you know, Christmas is all about being with family. And I love being with family at Christmas. That's not what Christmas is all about. We'll say it's all about giving and generosity, and I, it's a great time to give. That's not what it's about, at least in terms of, of our giving. Or you think of just kind of a snowy, cozy sentimentality. Like I love when we get out our Christmas tree and we're putting up ornaments and remembering different Christmases past, and especially if the timing's right and it's snowing outside and drinking hot. I mean, that's great, right? Drinking some hot cocoa, putting up the tree. But we can confuse that and say that's like what Christmas is about, and it's not. It's this child who's born king of the Jews, born to save, born to live a perfect life, born to die as a substitute, and yet conquering death even in that. And so it's our response to him, like the magi, to see, to recognize who he is, to worship him. And then all these great things that we love about Christmas can flow from that. But did you notice as we read through this, there's one other response. There, there's the hostile opposition of Herod, and there's the worship of the Magi. But in a response that might kind of seem to fall in the middle, we get the apathy of the scribes and the priests. Notice that they heard from Herod about this when Herod came in, in verses 3 and 4, and, and gathered the chief priests and scribes, it says, and they inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and they knew. They, they could tell them from the word the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is about five miles away from Jerusalem, so it's not like this is a long trek. They, they knew that this star had indicated that this Messiah had been born, at least they heard that from the Magi. you think they could have at least like put on their sandals and walked and kind of checked it out. Like, is there any validity to this? And yet we have no indication that they did. We have no indication that they, they bothered to even investigate and, and check it out. There appears to be apathy, disinterest. And, and that can be a response today. And that can be a little bit more subtle because the hostile opposition seems obvious. The, the response in worship is obvious. And yet the apathy can kind of convince us that oh, we're doing okay. You know, I, I'll... I'll make a choice about Jesus one day. I'm just going to kind of do my thing for now. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's God. Maybe he's not. But I'm not really going to bother to figure it out. And friends, I just want to encourage you, especially if you fall into that category. And especially if you like, that's especially, I think, dangerous for those that are growing up within a church body. They're, they're hearing these things over and over again, right? They can probably quote this passage. They know the songs we're going to sing. And yet still kind of sitting there, undecided about Jesus, uncommitted to Jesus. And I just want to encourage you that that, in a sense, is, is a decision. It, it is a rejection, even if it's a, a passive one. And so if you are in that spot, I encourage you, don't, don't remain there. If there's unanswered questions that you have, well, pursue answers. Talk to your parents. Talk to me. Talk to youth leaders. If there's things that you don't understand, ask questions for that. But don't remain in perpetual apathy. Jesus deserves more. He deserves more than that. Let's pray.